Okay, so today we are going to uh, start into the 18th century, the 1700s, and we're starting off by talking about evangelicalism in both England and America. And this is the time period in which Protestant evangelicalism begins. Um, and the painting that you see up there, it's a little bit dark, like all these old paintings tend to be. Uh, this is a portrait of George Whitefield, uh, English evangelist, preaching to perhaps people in the New World, or he could have been preaching to people in the Old World. Um, you know, he's, uh, he preached in both places. Um, and so first we're going to talk about George Whitefield, and then we'll talk about the First Great Awakening generally, and then we'll finish up by looking at Jonathan Edwards, who was a, an important uh, New England uh, preacher and ev evangelical of this period. All right, so George Whitefield, and there you see a portrait of him. And uh, I don't know how well you can see that, but George Whitefield was cross-eyed. He had what is technically known as strabismus. Um, and, you know, he just had this. There, back in those days, there wasn't anything they could really do about it. Um, some people looked at his uh, being cross-eyed as a sign of God's favor, interestingly. So George Whitefield, or Whitfield, was one of the most influential of the early English evangelicals. Born in Gloucester, England, he was educated at Oxford, where he met John and Charles Wesley. He was ordained in the Church of England, but never became a parish priest. Whitefield was the fifth son, seventh and last child, of Thomas Whitefield and Elizabeth Edwards, who kept an inn at Gloucester. At an early age, he found that he had a passion and talent for acting in the theater. And later, his natural acting gift would find service in the very theatrical reenactments of Bible stories he told during his sermons. Now, due to financial difficulties, Whitefield's parents did not have the means to pay for his college tuition. And so George had to work as what was termed a servitor, the lowest rank of undergraduates. He was given free tuition in exchange for being a servant to the university fellows and fellow commoners. So the aristocratic young men who went to Oxford, uh, he would have to serve them. So servitor duties included tutoring other students, helping them bathe, cleaning their rooms, carrying their books, and assisting them with work. Um, and he was also a part of the Holy Club at the University of Oxford with the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. An illness, as well as reading Scotsman Henry Google's book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man, influenced him to turn to the church. After experiencing what he called a new birth, Whitefield became passionate for preaching his newfound faith, and the Bishop of Gloucester ordained him as a deacon in the Church of England. So uh, this book that Henry Scoogle had written 
uh, expressed the idea that people had mistakenly understood Christianity to be orthodox notions and opinions or external duties or rapturous heats and ecstatic devotion. So in other words, some people look at salvation as professing the right ideas and doctrines or doing good works or being, uh, you know, practicing pietistic devotions, reading scripture, praying, spending hours uh, in the things of God, so to speak. But rather, Skugel wrote, true religion is a union of the soul with God. It is Christ formed within us. And Whitefield professed that he never knew what true religion was until he read Skugel. Whitefield went to Savannah, Georgia in 1738 in the American colonies and took over the priest, uh, priestly duties of Christ Church in Savannah. And again, this, you know, if you remember the previous talk, we talked about how the Church of England sent over missionaries and priests to set up Church of England or Anglican churches in the British colonies in North America. And so he became a priest in, in one of these churches. Now, while there, he decided that one of the great needs of the area was an orphan house or an orphanage. And he decided that this, creating an orphanage and preaching, would be his life's work. He returned to England to raise funds as well as to receive priest's orders. So technically, he was still a deacon in the Church of England. He had not yet been ordained as a priest. And while preparing for his return to North America, uh, so he went back to England. He's raising money for this orphanage in, in Georgia. And while he's in England, he preaches to large congregations. <clears throat> now, because Whitefield was drawing such large crowds, he couldn't preach in buildings. The crowds were too big for the average-sized church. So most of his preaching was done open air. And at the suggestion of friends, he preached to the miners of Kingswood outside Bristol, England, in the open air. Uh, and that was an area that was very poor. The miners were very poor. And, um, you know, the evangelism spread through these miners. Uh, they were very open to the gospel. Because Whitefield was returning to Georgia, he invited his friend, John Wesley, to take over his Bristol congregations. He encouraged Wesley to preach in the open air for the first time at Kingswood and then at Blackheath, London. Now, there was some difference between the views of Whitefield and the Wesleys, John and Charles. Whitefield accepted the doctrine of predestination and disagreed with, with the Wesley brothers' Arminian views on the doctrine of the atonement. So if you could mentally go back and think to some of the earlier discussions about Calvin and the Arminians, their different views. So essentially, uh, Whitefield is adhering to Calvinism. In other words, God chooses those whom he's going to save. He chooses them not on the basis of good works or anything that is righteous within them. He simply chooses them out of his love and favor. Not all are chosen. Whereas uh, the Arminian view is the, the, uh, that man can essentially choose God and 
you know, man within himself can make the first step to, towards God. It doesn't require that God do a work in the man first, necessarily. So as a result of this, uh, although Whitefield had formed and was the president of the first Methodist conference working with the Wesleys, he later left this conference to the Wesleys' oversight. Now, doctrinal differences aside, Whitefield believed that every truly religious person needs to experience a rebirth in Jesus. Aside from this, he cared little for distinctions of denomination or geography. Those, you know, the idea that he had to stay within the confines of the Church of England, that just was not in his mindset. But at the same time, he was not a dissenter like the Puritans had been. He was not railing against the abuses, as you know, many did of the church. He simply was, uh, he, he was filled with this conviction that he needed to preach the gospel essentially to the whole world. And he was going to do that as best he could uh, within his lifetime. And his work in the British North American colony of Georgia focused on establishing the Bethesda Orphanage. This orphanage and his preaching comprised the twofold task that occupied the rest of his life. Construction of the orphanage began March 25th of 1740. And this is not the original building, but the orphanage still stands. Today it's called the Bethesda Home for Boys. Um, the original building burned down at a certain point and had to be rebuilt, but this organization continues to this day outside of Savannah, Georgia. Whitefield wanted the orphanage to be a place of strong Calvinist influence with a wholesome atmosphere and strong discipline, pretty typical for that time period in the approach to how children should be raised or reared. Boys were taught trades so that they could earn a living as adults. And younger children learned spinning and carding, and all boys were taught mechanics and agriculture. The boys grew most of the orphanage's food on the land surrounding the school. Whitefield hoped that the orphanage would become the foundation of a university. But the enterprise was more expensive than anticipated, and Whitefield went into debt. Now, Whitefield uh, ended up making a connection with Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Franklin was impressed by his preaching, and Franklin suggested that due to the scarcity of workmen and materials in Georgia, Georgia was one of the last colonies to be settled uh, in the original 13 British North American colonies. So Franklin thought it would be better to move the orphanage and its children to Philadelphia. There would be more resources available. But Whitefield refused to move the orphanage because his contributors donated money specifically for the Georgia project. Now, interestingly, and a lot of people don't realize this, when Georgia was founded, it was founded as a slave-free colony. You could not bring slaves into Georgia. It was founded in 1732, and the man who founded the colony was opposed to slavery. But many British colonists, as time went on, began to advocate for the introduction of slaves because they wanted to establish large plantations 
just like in the other southern colonies, and they were convinced that the only way they could do this was with the use of slave labor. Um, another uh, stipulation that was put on settlers in Georgia was you could only own up to about 40 acres of land. You know, so that's pretty small. So, you know, with no slaves, with um, restrictions on the amount of land an individual land owner could hold, and, you know, these British transplants are looking at what's going on in other colonies, you know, they're upset with this idea that our plantations have to be restricted in size, and we want to bring slaves in for the labor. Unfortunately, Whitefield was one of those advocating for legalization of slavery in Georgia so that he could own slaves to work the plantation supporting the orphanage. And so Whitefield, along with others, uh, at, continued to advocate for um, lifting this ban on slavery, and it was finally lifted in 1751. Also around this time, the, the governance of the colony went from, uh, the colony went from being a proprietary colony, in other words, a business enterprise, to becoming a colony subject to the King of England. So with that change in governance, there was a change of laws. And now English laws governed this colony, and English laws did not prohibit slavery in the colony. Now, Whitefield owned slaves, yet his views on slavery reveal a fundamental contradiction that would come to plague many Christian slave owners in the North American colonies. Whitefield saw the legalization of black residency as part personal victory and part divine will. Whitefield now argued a scriptural justification for black residency in Georgia as slaves Yet he increased the number of black children at his orphanage, using his preaching to raise money to house them. Whitefield became perhaps the most energetic and conspicuous evangelical defender and practitioner of the rights of black people. So he also, ad again, this doesn't make any sense to us. I, you know, how, how could you say these things? But um, he also, in the middle of wanting to bring slaves onto his, black slaves onto his plantation to work the fields and produce crops, he also is advocating for rights for them. Of course, not only were there enslaved African people, but there were free blacks as well in both the South and the North during this time. Um, and so he began to advocate for their rights uh, along with slavery. And again, makes no sense. By propagating such a theological defense for black residency, Whitefield, of course, was helping slaveholders prosper. And upon his death, Whitefield left everything in the orphanage to Selina, Countess of Huntingdon in England, who had provided financial support. So there was this rich aristocratic lady in England who'd heard Whitefield's teaching, had been converted, uh, had received the gospel, and because she's a wealthy aristocrat, was able to provide a lot of funds for Whitefield's endeavors. Um, and upon his death, he turned all of his property over back over to her. And this property included 4,000 acres of land, 
so he had managed to expand the plantation significantly and 50 black slaves. Um, it became the practice for some slaveholders upon their, their death uh, or shortly before their death to free their slaves, but Whitefield did not do this. Now, again, in a contradictory fashion, during his lifetime, Whitefield advocated for humane treatment of slaves. In 1740, during his second visit to America, Whitefield published an open letter to the planters of South Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland. Notice he doesn't name Georgia. Chastising them for their cruelty to their slaves. He wrote, I think God has a quarrel with you for your abuse of and cruelty to the poor Negroes. Furthermore, Whitefield wrote, your dogs are caressed and fondled at your tables, but your slaves who are frequently styled dogs or beasts have not an equal privilege. Some have claimed that the Bethesda orphanage set an example of humane treatment of black people, but Whitefield, again, in a very contradictory, he's also remembered as one of the first to preach to slaves. Phyllis Wheatley, an enslaved woman who lived from 1753 to 1784, and she was a slave, wrote a poem on the death of the Reverend Mr. George Whitefield in 1770 while she was still a slave. She had been profoundly influenced by Whitefield's preaching. Um, later on, we will talk more about uh, Phyllis Wheatley because she is essentially the first uh, African-American woman in North America to write poetry. Um, she had received an education. She had heard Whitefield preach in Massachusetts. She was actually uh, owned by people who lived in Massachusetts. Whitefield's religious defense of slavery, with an emphasis on helping slaves, set the tone that many American Christian slaveholders would come to adopt. And um, I don't know when I'm going to uh, touch on this, but in a future talk, I will talk specifically about uh, Christianity as it developed among whites and blacks in the American South in the 19th century. And we will come back to this very fundamental contradiction uh, which proved over time to be simply unworkable um, and wrong. And so Whitefield, along with other Christians, gave a Christian justification for slavery, but yet they also wanted to expose their slaves to the Christian gospel. They wanted them to hear the gospel. And this contradictory viewpoint would greatly impact and affect the evangelical Protestant wing of the church in North America for generations, and I would say it continues to this day. Whitefield was active not only in establishing the orphanage in Georgia, but also in continuing to preach throughout the colonies, both North and South. Whitefield was part of the first Great Awakening taking place in England and North America. The first Great Awakening or the Evangelical Revival was a series of Christian revivals that swept Britain and its 13 North American colonies in the 1730s and 40s. 
Now, a similar type of movement was happening in Europe on the continent. Um, it was known as pietism over there. So it, it was especially active among Lutherans. This idea that everyone needs to hear the gospel, every individual needs to have uh, a born-again experience and come to know Christ in an intimate, personal way for themselves. And, you know, in the history of the church, I mean, you know, a lot of people have advocated for the fact that this is nothing more than the original gospel as taught by the apostles that we see proclaimed in the gospels in the book of Acts. And yet, this is a pretty new thing for the church after centuries of church history that had layered on uh, a lot of stuff over top of the basic gospel. The revival movement permanently affected Protestants as adherents strove to renew individual piety and religious devotion. The movement became characterized as Anglo-American evangelicalism. And this movement still has, um, you know, it's left its mark. I mean, you can still see it in the church today. There are many British churches and American churches who share um, a, a lot of similarities in doctrine, uh, approach to Christian practice. And there's even mega churches that continue in this Anglo-American uh, vein. And in particular, think of Hillsong. Um, now, after all, Australia, who, were, who, who settled Australia? Well, it was British people, along, you know, along with others. Um, and so, and today, of course, Hillsong is all throughout the world, but it's primarily an Anglo, um, it has its roots in Anglo-American evangelicalism. These ideas transcended denominational lines and helped forge a common evangelical identity. In the United States, the term Great Awakening is most often used. While in the United Kingdom or Britain, the movement is referred to as the Evangelical Revival. Revivalists added an emphasis on providential outpourings of the Holy Spirit to reform doctrine. A lot, of the, a lot of the evangelicals, these Anglo, you know, British and American evangelicals, were, uh, some of them were Calvinist in their beliefs, some of them were Arminian, but they began to say things that, the, you know, the churches of this era simply were not talking about, which was, in particular, the Holy Spirit, that there would, could be outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Extemporaneous preaching gave listeners a sense of deep personal conviction of their need of salvation by Jesus Christ and fostered introspection and commitment to a new standard of personal morality. Revival theology stressed that religious conversion was not only intellectual assent to correct Christian doctrine, but it had to be a new birth experienced in the heart. Many revivalists also taught that receiving assurance of salvation was a normal expectation in the Christian life. While the evangelical revival united evangelicals across various denominations around shared beliefs, it also led to divisions in existing churches between those who supported the revivals and those who did not. 
um, you know, pretty much any time you have a revival, and this you can see this starting in the book of Acts and all throughout church history, whenever God is moving among a people, the Holy Spirit's being poured out, there are people who support that, and of course there are people who don't like it. Opponents accuse the revivals of fostering disorder and fanaticism within the churches by enabling uneducated, itinerant preachers and encouraging religious enthusiasm. <laughs> Very dangerous. <laughs> and you know, if you think about it, a guy like Whitefield, he's just doing his own thing. Nobody is telling, you know, the church is not saying, oh, oh, you need to be this parish priest, and you need to stop traveling around, and you need to stop starting up different ministries, and you just need to stop, and we need to control you. He's, he's literally doing his own thing. In England, evangelical Anglicans would grow into an important group within the Church of England, leading to what is known as low church Anglicanism, and those groups exist today. The Methodist movement would develop out of the ministries of George Whitefield and the Wesleys. In the American colonies, the awakening caused the Congregational and Presbyterian churches to split, while it strengthened both the Methodists and Baptists. It had little immediate impact on most Lutherans, Quakers, and non-Protestants, but later it would cause a split among the Quakers. Now, where, where did the Baptists come from? You know, today, um, just about on, you know, any street corner you turn on, you can find a Baptist church. And there are lots of different kinds of Baptists these days. Um, but where did, how did they originate? And they actually have their origin in the separatist Puritan movement back, you know, again, going way back to the uh, 17th century in England. And essentially, the first Baptist congregation was formed in 1609 by, uh, by John Smythe. Uh, he was a separatist. He left England because there was too much persecution, you know, just like the pilgrims had to do. He went to the Netherlands. He created this church, and he began focusing on the rite of baptism. And the way he read the New Testament um, he believed that paedo-baptism, or the baptism of infants, as the Church of England, the Roman Catholic Church, and many other churches uh, practiced, was wrong. And he said, what we need to do is we need to baptize only believing adults, or, you know, if it comes to children or young people, uh, people who can adequately express their faith. Uh, so that we know they are really indeed believers. So he began this idea of believer's baptism, and his uh, congregation focused on that. And Baptist practice spread to England, where the general Baptist uh, groups began to spring up. And general Baptists uh, considered Christ's atonement to extend to all people. In other words, they were adherents of Arminian theology, and then there were particular Baptists, and they believed that Christ's atonement extended only to the elect. So they, okay, Greg.
Okay, as Greg was pointing out, uh, just for the sake of those listening uh, through the live stream, um, Greg was pointing out that today particular Baptists, especially in America, would be called Reformed Baptists. So they adhere to Reformed theology, but they practice believer's baptism, and they do not believe in baptizing infants. Yes, and the London Baptist Confession of 1689, and again, you can Google that and, and read it, uh, it's an expression of faith of this particular group of Baptists. And in future talks, of, of course, um, Baptists found, in, in the New World, found uh, fertile soil, so to speak, for um, their, their work in ministry. And, um, you know, we'll talk, in, again, in future talks, about all the different kinds of Baptist groups that emerged and um, so that you understand that. Because uh, in terms of how evangelical Protestant Christianity influenced America, the Baptists and the Methodists essentially take first place in terms of their influence. Uh, there was another Eng Englishman, and I think I've talked to him, uh, talked about him rather in uh, previous talks, Thomas Helwis, who lived from 1575 to 1616, uh, who was uh, also a prominent Baptist, but he didn't go to the Netherlands. He stayed in England, and he advocated for uh, separation of church and state so that people could have uh, freedom of religion. In other words, decouple the government of a country from its religious practices and, and the church and, and the state should be completely separate so that the church can go about doing what it wants to do without being dictated to by the king and parliament. Um, and he didn't live very long, you know, if you do the math. He was pretty young when he died. And that was because uh, he lived during the time of the reign of James I, James of the King James Bible, um, but Helwis's uh, advocating for separation of church and state was considered so incredibly radical that he was thrown into prison and he died in prison. And his, his views didn't really, you know, weren't, he didn't have a chance to really sp spread those views. Now, English Baptists also sought to differentiate themselves from Swiss and German Anabaptists, although their beliefs about baptism were similar. In the 18th century, many English Baptists referred to themselves as the Christians, commonly, though falsely called, Anabaptists. So, you know, they were English in their orientation, uh, you know, you could look at the doctrines of the Anabaptist groups and the English Baptists, um, and you could see a lot of similarities. But the English Baptists wanted to differentiate themselves, and perhaps it might be because the Anabaptists were so severely persecuted. Greg? They were all, all 
Right. Right. I think there was an emphasis on, you know, we English Baptists want to prove that we are indeed Orthodox Christians. We are, you know, and the Anabaptist movement was viewed by many as, you know, outside Orthodoxy. In 1639, Roger Williams established one of the first two Baptist churches in the British North American colonies in Providence, Rhode Island. Roger Williams established the colony of Rhode Island, and he was an advocate for separation of church and state and religious freedom. And in Rhode Island, you could be of any faith and you would not be persecuted for your beliefs. Um, but he adhered to Baptist theology, English Baptist theology and founded a church. And John Clark, Williams's co-worker, began a Baptist church at the, about the same time in Newport, Rhode Island. So these are essentially the first, you know, and there's some quibble as to which church was actually founded first. And, you know, if you think about Baptist churches in general, what do they all say? First Baptist church, right? <laughs> you know, there's lots of First Baptist churches. You know, you go throughout any city in America, you will find the First Baptist Church. Well, what they're saying is, we are the First Baptist Church in this locality. Um, but these two, these two churches were the two initial beginnings of English Baptist churches in the North American colonies. And the Great Awakening energized the Baptist movement and the Baptist community experienced spectacular growth. Baptists became the largest Christian community in many southern states including among the enslaved black populations. The Great Awakening was not the first time that Protestant churches had experienced revival. However, it was the first time a common evangelical identity had emerged based on a fairly uniform understanding of salvation, preaching the gospel, and conversion. Revival theology focused on the way of salvation, the stages by which a person receives Christian faith and then expresses that faith in the way they live. Now, important other figures of the Great Awakening include Jonathan Edwards, Gilbert Tennant, Jonathan Dickinson, and Samuel Davies. Moderate evangelicals who preached a pietistic form of Calvinism, heavily influenced by Puritanism, they held that religion was not only an intellectual exercise, but also had to be felt and experienced in the heart. And a lot of what we're gonna describe here is gonna sound very familiar to you, because I'm sure you've heard presentations of the gospel that follow along similar lines. So uh, these preachers uh, had you know, what you might call a moderate revival theology, and there was essentially a three-stage process. First, you need to be convicted of your sin. You need spiritual preparation for faith by God's law and the means of grace. You need to understand that you are a sinner and that you need to be born again. And then 
Conversion needs to be explained to you. You need to understand the process by which you become born again. Spiritual illumination, repentance leading to faith. And then, once you've been born again, experiencing consolation, searching and receiving assurance of salvation. So the sense that you know you have been through this process, you have been born again, and now God has saved you, and you sense the assurance of that. Conviction of sin was the stage that prepared someone to receive salvation, and this stage often lasted weeks or sometimes months. When under conviction, non-believers realized they were guilty of sin and under divine condemnation and subsequently faced feelings of sorrow and anguish. When revivalists preach, they emphasize God's moral law to highlight the holiness of God and to spark conviction in the unconverted. In other words, it is, you know, as expressed in, in Romans, as, you know, John has been going through the, uh, the epistle of Romans to us, you need to understand the law of God so you can understand how sinful you indeed truly are. Um, and these revivalists, these preachers, did not uh, kind of gloss over that point. They spent a lot of time on it. They did a lot of preaching about sin, you know, and, and that's probably, you know, where a lot of people get the idea of fire and brimstone preaching, you know, because they talked about hell. They talked about what would happen to you if you died in your sins. Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, is an example of such preaching. How many people here have heard of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Quite a few. Yes, it was. I had to read it in high school, and I attended a public high school. Um, it is a, um, it's an example of early American uh, evangelical Christian literature. And it's very easy to find, you know, you Google it and you can, you can read it for yourself on the internet. So Jonathan Edwards, born in 1703, died in 1758. And that's an extremely dark picture, but, <laughs> you know, they didn't have a whole lot of light back then. <laughs> and they wore a lot of black. And you can see he's dressed as a typical Church of England Methodist, you know, after a while, the style of dress, especially in the American colonies, th this was the standard style of dress for ministers of almost any denomination except Roman Catholic. Um, you know, for one thing, these people weren't wealthy. They could not afford fancy, expensive clothing. Um, black was a common color, so you wore a black robe, and if you were a, a pastor, uh, you, you wore this special kind of collar with these two uh, fabric, white fabric tabs is extending down. And that's, as soon as people looked at you, they knew you were a pastor or a preacher. So John, Jonathan Edwards was an American revivalist preacher, philosopher, and congregationalist theologian. Edwards is widely recognized as one of America's most important and original philosophical theologians. 
but he is perhaps best known today, especially for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached first in 1741. Jonathan Edwards was born on October 5th, 1703, the only son of Timothy Edwards, a minister at East Windsor, Connecticut, modern day South Windsor, for those of you who want to know about Connecticut geography. And this, you know, of course, a pastor, uh, pastor was not wealthy, and Timothy Edwards received a salary for preaching and pastoring a church, and he had to supplement it because he had a lot of kids um, by tutoring boys for college. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' mother, Esther Stoddard, was the daughter of Reverend, Reverend Solomon Stoddard, another prominent New England uh, evangelical preacher and pastor. And she seems to have been a woman of unusual mental gifts and independence of character. So she was bright, and she produced some bright kids. Jonathan, their only son, was the fifth of 11 children. Also, the Edwards uh, owned slaves. They had at least one slave in their household, uh, a, slave, a black man named Ansars. And again, you know, we are not used to thinking of people in the northern colonies having slaves, but they indeed did. Jonathan was trained for college by his father and elder sisters, all of whom were well-educated for the standards of the day. Uh, he entered Yale College in 1716 at the age of 13. In the following year, he became acquainted with John Locke's essay concerning human understanding, which influenced him profoundly. During his college studies, he kept notebooks labeled the mind, natural science, and it contained a discussion of the atomic theory. He was reading the works of scientists who, you know, remember we talked about the scientific revolution along with the enlightenment. He was, number one, he was very intelligent. He was interested in science, not just in theology, and he studied these things. He had a notebook called the scriptures and he had a notebook called miscellanies or just random things. And he had a grand plan for a work on natural and mental philosophy and drew up rules for its composition. Had he, you know, had he lived in another time period, he might have ended up becoming a scientist as opposed to a pastor. He was interested in natural history, which is what they termed science in those days. And as a precocious 11-year-old had observed and written an essay detailing the ballooning behavior of some spiders. Edwards edited this text later to match the burgeoning genre of scientific literature and his work on the flying spider fit easily into the contemporary scholarship on spiders. Edwards' interest in science continued throughout his life. Although many European scientists and American clergymen found the implications of science pushing them towards deism, Edwards went the other way. He believed the natural world was evidence of God's masterful design. Throughout his life, Edwards often went into the woods as a favorite place to pray and worship in the beauty and solace of nature. He was fascinated by the discoveries of Isaac Newton and other scientists of this time period. Before he was called to full-time ministry work in Northampton, Massachusetts, he wrote on various topics, 
including flying spiders. He has this preoccupation with spiders, which they show up in his famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. <laughs> Light and optics. And he continued to study in addition to working as a pastor. While he worried about those of his contemporaries who seemed preoccupied by materialism and faith in reason alone, he considered the laws of nature to be derived from God and demonstrating God's wisdom and care. His written sermons uh, and other works emphasize the beauty of God and the role of aesthetics or the study of what is beautiful in the spiritual life. He was ordained in Northampton in 1727 and became an assistant to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. He was a scholar pastor, not a visiting pastor, his rule being 13 hours of study a day. Rigorous. <laughs> that same year that he was ordained, he married Sarah Pierpont. She was of a bright and cheerful disposition, a practical housekeeper, a model wife, and the mother of 11 children. Uh, on July 8, 1731, Edwards preached in Boston the public lecture afterwards published under the title, God Glorified in the Work of Redemption, etc., which was his first public attack on Arminianism. He was a Calvinist. But by 1733, the Great Awakening had reached Massachusetts and revival broke out. This revival gave Edwards an opportunity to study the process of conversion in all its phases and varieties, and he produced a work called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in Northampton. And then he produced a work on five sermons, which had proved effective in the revival. And one of these sermons, Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners, was based on the text from Romans 3.19, that every mouth be stopped. So he was hitting controversial Calvinistic topics head on in his sermons. By 1735, the revival had spread and popped up independently across the Connecticut River Valley and perhaps as far as New Jersey. But criticism of the revival began and many New Englanders feared that Edwards had led his flock into fanaticism. And over uh, the summer of 1735, uh, some problems began to crop up. Uh, a number of New Englanders were shaken by the revivals but did not experience conversion and became convinced that they were in fact damned and there was no other option for them. At least two individuals committed suicide as a result and one of them was an uncle of Jonathan Edwards. By 1741, Edwards had made a connection with George Whitefield and they worked together to orchestrate Whitefield's preaching trip first through Boston and then to Northampton. As the revival continued, there were many who experienced what were termed bodily effects, the swoonings or faintings, outcries and convulsions experienced by many in attendance. Later evangelical Christians would call those sorts of things manifestations of the Holy Spirit moving upon people uh, such as falling out or being slain in the spirit. But in those days, they termed them bodily effects, and conservative Congregationalist pastors were quite alarmed. 
Charles Chauncey wrote Seasonable Thoughts on the State of Religion in New England, and then later wrote The Later Religious Commotions in New England Considered. In these works, he urged conduct as the sole test of conversion. So how do we know people are saved? Not because they fall out in the presence of the Holy Spirit, but how they live their lives. And the General Convention of Congregational Ministers in Massachusetts protested against uh, the things that the revival was stirring up, disorders in practice. Bodily effects could not be considered to be proof of real biblical conversion. But Edwards believed that they were nonetheless real and God was doing something, uh, certainly, and we could see it in, the, in some of those things. And um, later he went on to write a, kind of a, a, a narrative of what was experienced during the revivals and he described, in this work, he described his, his, uh, the people who were listening as, as they responded to his preaching and they responded with grace. This was causing a new light in their perspective on sin and atonement. And proponents of the revival came to be known as New Light Calvinists. Old Light Calvinist ministers, therefore, were the ones critical of the revival. Edwards' writings and beliefs continue to influence individuals and groups to this day. Um, he's, his works have been influential and remain influential. They are still in print. Um, there's a publishing house called The Banner of Truth Trust, and they print and reprint many Puritan writings, writings of Edwards and other uh, you know, important influential Christians of this era. So, you know, if you want to, you can go to Amazon, you can go to other booksellers online, you can find some of his stuff for free on the internet. Greg? Uh, the, the famous modern preacher, Tim, Tim Keller, uh, lists Jonathan Edwards as the most influential person on his day. Yeah. Right, Ed, Edwards has influenced many, many uh, Christian preachers in America and really throughout the world. Um, his work is, is very influential. And you know, if all you do is ever read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you're just getting a small slice of his thinking. Uh, he wrote a lot more and uh, you know, there's, much, there's much good material to mine in, in what he has written. So um, we're going a little bit long, so I'm gonna stop here. Um, and you know, if you have any questions or comments, I'm afraid we're gonna have to table those for now because we are so late. But I'm gonna be here for the second meeting. I'll be eating lunch, so if you wanna ask me any questions, feel free.